the prayer for Brother Bob, and uh, it's interesting to have the name uh, Bob. Uh, just a lot of august feelings come with that name of tomatoes and builders and <laughs> sponges. And I have one guy that calls me, uh, every email he sends me is, is Dr. Bob, and I mentioned that to somebody, and I got the reply, wasn't that a Muppet? <laughs> so, so um, I guess it's good for your one's ego. <laughs> but uh, Romans chapter uh, 3, and we're going to do just, uh, the next section is just chapter, the end of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4. And so Romans chapter 3, verse 21 and since this is not as long, um, I am going to read this. And so I think it's just reading scripture has an effect on us. So verse 21, well, let me read verse 19, which summarizes the first section of the wrath of God. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Every mouth, all the world, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, for while uncircumcised... For he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be father of all who believe 
without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them, and the father of the circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is no violation. For this reason, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but to those who are also of the faith, who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all, as it is written, the father of many nations have I made you, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed so that he might become a father of many nations, according to which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he, does not, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Last time we considered that every one of us is a sinner. In that, and I'm going to use the word sinner, I'm going to use the word failure. Because it, it has the idea of missing the mark, I'm told, and I just like the feel of telling somebody uh, you know, to describe it, to say you're a failure. That brings an offense with it. It's like, you know, because that, that says it's, you're too far gone. You've, you know, you've, you've already blown it and you can't make up for it and you're done. Versus even you failed, try again, or something like that. To say you're a failure is to imply something's going to have to be done outside of you. And <laughs> thankfully, this chapter and these chapters tell us what's done outside of us. Say, what, what, what did you do, God, to fix it? Because by the works of the law, he says, no flesh shall be justified. And he's, he's echoing Psalm 143, verse 2, where it says that no flesh shall be justified, even if you're a servant of God, if God were to look. I mean, Psalm 130 says, if he were to examine our works and mark our iniquities, none of us could stand. We have clear testimony in Scripture that we have blown it. And if only eating one forbidden fruit took us away from the presence of God, I dare say there's been a few pounds or more of fruit or other things or other activities in this room. So we've definitely blown it. So how are we going to be brought near to God? What is he going to do since it's beyond our hope? And this chapter, this section is so rich so hopeful because it turns the corner from the wrath of God to the righteousness of God. And so let me start with a, this a question that my wife has asked my children. If you wanted to be known for something, what would it be? One of my children said, a hard worker. Okay. Another one said, a learner. If I remember right, a learner. You know, so, okay. If you were asked that question, you know, what, what would you want to be known for? 
I would want to be known for, you know, I love my grandkids. I would want to be known I was always there for them. I would want to be known I never gave up on anyone. I would want to be known for, you follow me? These are, these are deeply motivating things in us of what we would hope to be known for. And it is, again, going back to the idea of identity, this, in this case, is self-identity on a deeper psychological level. Like, what, how do I conceive of myself? What would I hope to be and be known for? And then turn it around. When does it really, really hurt to be accused? If something, I mean, if somebody accuses me of, say, you know, you're a bad cook, I don't know, I don't know what to say other than I guess I agree with you. It's like, you know, you know, I can make scrambled eggs, bowl of cereal, um, I can stir the pot when my wife says, you know, please stir this for me. I said, you know, it's not much, not not a deep well there, you know, but it, but there are some things. Like I remember a particular meeting once in my past when somebody says, told me, you're not a good administrator. Well, that one kind of hurt because I'd, I really kind of prided myself to some extent that I could maintain a bunch of moving parts and coordinate efforts and, and manage things. And so that's kind of, that felt kind of hurtful then to be you know, told that. So you can look at it either way. What would you hope to be known for? Where does it really pinch and hurt when you're accused and you feel like it's been false, falsely accused. And so the good news is, is that, so we're going to, the good news is, is that God has done something outside of us to establish a status for us that is not due to anything we did ourselves, but is due to something that he had promised years ago. Verse 21 uses a temporal phrase, a historical phrase, but now. Sometimes we think of that as just like a statement that's going to transition logically, but it actually should be treated now in history. But now, at this time, if you look in verse 20, 26, he says at the present time. So he's emphasizing in the historical present. We live in a certain time period where God has done something apart from law, apart from the rule book that you had to keep that would say, do this and do this, and the man who lives by these, who does these things, shall live by them. Apart from that status, God has done something. But it was promised in the same book that gave you those rules. So it's kind of a, the Old Testament's kind of odd. It has both law, which chapter 5 says is added, but it also that it's added on top of a bedrock of promise, which chapter 4 talks about promise. And so the promises of God spoke of a time period when he would rectify and change the problems that man had caused under the influence of the devil through his sin. You know, the, the hostility between the, the woman and the seed and the seed of the serpent's going to crush the seed of the woman's head or heel, and he's going to crush your head. That's right away in chapter 3 of Genesis, and there's promise, 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 all throughout, woven throughout the Old Testament. According to chapter 1, in the preface of this book, the gospel should best, I think, would best be seen as a historical thing, defined historically. If you were in a class right now, I'd write it on the board. Okay, it would say something like this, you know, the gospel is the good news that God is now fulfilling his promises in the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the good news of chapter 1, verse 2, where it says, the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. It's the same thing he preached among the Gentiles. At the end of the book, he says, Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested, and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the 
commandment of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations. There's debate on this. I'm just going to level with you. Theologians go round and round on like how secret was what God was going to do in the New Testament. How secret was it in the Old? So this is going to be my understanding of this. So you may fall to the left or to the right of me on this, but it seems to me that the way God did it was kind of like a parable. Because the same language for parable and God hiding things in a parable is what Isaiah used with regard to his own prophecies. And so, in a parable, God speaks and yet he doesn't speak. He says things, but yet he doesn't say things. It's veiled language. And so, you end up seeing but not seeing, and hearing but not hearing. And so, it's there. The prophecies of the Old Testament about Jesus are there. But if you lived in the Old Testament, you would scratch your head, as Peter describes the prophets going... They're trying to search who and when it would all take place. But now in the light of the gospel, in the light of Jesus coming, all those elements that were there, all of a sudden, like, I see how they come together. I see how they they came about and are made full in Christ. And so the good news is all those promises, which we've scratched our head and like, how is it going to happen, are now at this time being fulfilled in this unique person, Jesus. That's good news. And part of the mystery that was foretold, that was like prophesied through institutions like the tabernacle, through practices like sacrifices and priests, through specific promises about you know a coming redemption that is very great, All these promises about dealing with the guilt problem, now when Jesus hangs on the cross, makes sense. And we see that he died for our sins and fulfilled what Isaiah says, that all we like sheep have gone astray, each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, such that he was pierced through for our transgressions. And crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening for our peace fell upon him. And by his whippings we are healed. I really like the idea of a mystery now revealed. Where the mystery it was born witness to. As verse 21 says. It was there. But still hidden under veiled language. But now revealed. Made manifest. Which we would say is obvious. In the present time. So what does that mean? It's a righteousness of God. Isaiah talked about it. Chapter 51. My righteousness would be revealed. And my salvation. Chapter 1 verse 16 says. That the salvation of God. Is based on verse 17. The righteousness of God. And so what Isaiah said would happen. Has happened. What is this righteousness of God? Picture yourself 500 years ago. You're an Augustinian monk. You've been scared into it by a lightning storm. And you find yourself with a Bible in your hands for the first time. You're about 20. And you start reading this book. And this book starts gripping you. And you start hearing this phrase, it's somehow good news. The righteousness of God. But it doesn't strike you as good news. How could the righteousness of God be good news for me, a sinner? It would appear like the righteousness of God should punish. Which, according to chapter 3, in the beginning of of this chapter, actually says the wrath of God is part of what makes him righteous. How can the righteousness of God then be something good? It seems like there is two ways this can be interpreted. Luther took it as a righteousness that belongs to God. That's how he took it at first. But then he discovered that it was a righteousness from God that could be given, a status given, to anyone who believed. 
And so we see in chapter 5, Paul uses the language of receiving a righteousness. Isaiah even, this is really interesting, but Isaiah chapter 5 says, woe to those judges, you know, who take the righteousness of the righteous and justify the wicked. Now you can hear the language of taking a righteousness. These guys already were righteous, were innocent, they didn't deserve to be punished, but they takes their righteousness, their status before the law. And then the opposite uses different language, but uses the language of our text, justify. And then the judge turns around and justifies the wicked, exonerates, acquits them, says, you didn't do anything wrong, pronounces them innocent, pronounces him guilty. He was innocent. Why did you take his righteousness? He was guilty. Why didn't you, right? Why did you justify him? Now, do you see the language? you hear the language? The opposite of justify is condemn. Found throughout this book, even found in other places. Deuteronomy. So it's judicial language. It speaks of who can, what kind of status will you have before God. And so here's... Luther, when he discovered this, he described it. When he saw that it's a righteousness of God given on the basis, actually, of grace through faith, he said it was like the doors of paradise opened up and I walked through. Nobody can establish their own righteousness with God. So God took upon himself to give a righteousness. Now, with that in mind, notice what the text says in chapter 3 of this. Chapter 3, verse 22, is a righteousness of God, see it as from God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. All those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and lack the glory of God. That goes back to what we said in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Every one of us is a failure and none of us can say, I'm better. In fact, those who think they're superior typically are worse because to whom much has been given, much should be required. And so when we sin against more light, we actually sin worse. So all of us are Sinning, having sinned, and lack, notice the status, or notice the identity word, we lack the glory of God. We have quit worshiping him, so we quit looking like him. We cashed it in. We exchanged the glory of God for a counterfeit. The language of chapter 1. Therefore, we, got, we have nothing. We have vanity. We lack what we should have made in his image, which is a glory. And so as a result of that, every one of us is in the same boat. But that puts us all on the same leveling, on the same playing field. It's completely level. Any one of us who believe a righteousness then from God is given freely to us, a status. I remember baptizing an 80-year-old man and his wife. That woman was so scared of the water. But she was so cute when she went in with her hair all up in a big plastic covering. And it was getting those older couple down in that baptismal tank. But what kept Frank from becoming a Christian was, how could God forgive 80 years of neglecting him? I have wasted my entire life. That was, that was the stumbling block. And until he could see God forgave Peter <laughs> and feel like somebody was worse than me, it was like, it was like gave him hope. You know, well, I, guess I, I guess there's room for me. You know? Well, Paul said, chief of sinners, right, to give people examples. So praise the Lord for Peter and praise the Lord for Frank. And, but it doesn't matter. There's nothing that should keep us back from coming. The gift is available. If you've never, ever considered this, Please take this seriously. I wrestled with this in my 20s, agonized over this, because somehow or another I thought it was through this and that. But when God opened my eyes and I saw it was a genuine gift, 
He think, Bob, we're teaching our six-year-olds in Sunday school it's a gift. You just got to receive a gift. I was like, I know. <laughs> but when your eyes don't see it, your eyes don't see it. If you've not seen it, it is genuinely a gift. It will floor you. How could he do that? And yet read the parable in Luke 18 about the tax collector and the Pharisee that go to the temple. And you tell me who walked home, Jesus' words, justified. The man that beat his chest and wouldn't look to heaven and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be propitious to me, literally in the Greek, a sinner. Walked home justified. And you say, how can God do that? Now, before I get to that, I guess I, if, I'm going I'm to put an amen on this. Because look at verse 24. All who have sinned are all believers. There is no distinction because verse 22 says they are believers, they've sinned, they lack God's glory, and are now justified. And if Paul couldn't stress it enough, he uses two words for gift, as a gift, by his grace. Both of them emphasize the same thing. God did it freely. He wasn't coerced. You can't manipulate a God who can do all things and has no needs. He does whatever he pleases in the heavens and the earth and the seas and in all deeps. And praise the Lord, what pleases him is to justify sinners freely and shock all the rest of us. <laughs> so, praise the Lord for that. And we will find people like you, <laughs> yeah, me. It's like, okay, this is, this is grace. How did he do it? This brings up the cross. Because I just quoted Isaiah, he was pierced through for our transgressions, our rebellious acts. He was crushed for our twisted or perverted behavior. And so how did, how did we gain such a status of righteousness? It's because he gained such a status of guilt. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's one of the most precious verses in the New Testament. God put the sin of us on Jesus and took the righteousness then, I'm going to even say even more graphically, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then apply that to our account. And so then this great exchange where... Guilt went this way, rightness went this way. And now we have righteousness, we have right standing before God. This is truly scandalous. If earthly judges did this, we would want them off the bench. In fact, God wouldn't even satisfy his own law. Because Deuteronomy chapter 25 I think it is verse 1 says, you shall not justify the wicked. Like Isaiah said they were doing in his day. Looking at the wicked and justifying them, giving them a status of rightness. You shall not do that. That's exactly what Romans 4, Romans 4 verse 5 says God does. God justifies the wicked. He gives them a status of not guilty. Verse 8 quotes Psalm 32 saying he doesn't impute or doesn't charge them with guilt. The word is reckoned, but he doesn't charge them with guilt. I mean, think about this. God, after all I've done, I have not honored you as God, I've not given thanks, I have not loved you as I should. And then throw in all the laws and the rules I've broken. Then throw in all my standards that I held others to but didn't keep myself. And that's quite a pile. And to think, you won't charge me with any of it? None of it's going to stick? That's amazing. And the man who wrote Psalm 32 was David, who committed adultery and who murdered to cover it up. And I remember this little old lady in a trailer court across from our church, and I go and talk to her about it, and then she'd go round and round. We go round and round. I think she was a, I don't know, it was so, I think she was a believer, 
But she would get stumped by David every time. It's like she was good old Wesleyan lady. And it's like murder and adultery and he's going to heaven? I was like, yep. I mean, he's the one that wrote it. That, it's significant to me that God justifies the wicked because I'm wicked. And he does it through, chapter 3 says, through the propitiation, through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. There is a $10 word that you probably haven't said recently. Propitiation. And I'm glad the New American Standard uses it because it is a very technical word, but it has a very clear meaning. There was a billboard once in between our big town and the little town where I served as a pastor. I don't know why it was there. It was there a lot. It was for a florist shop, and it had a flower on it, and then the little words underneath it says, How angry is she? (laughs) That flower is a propitiation, okay? Like, how many dozens will it take to turn her anger away, okay? That's what propitiation means, a gift that turns away anger. We saw from chapters 1 and 2 and 3, God is angry. There is just cause for God to be angry with us over sin. What is a gift so big that such anger could be turned away? When you think about this, I had my ninth graders the other day. And I was talking to them about this a little bit, and I said, Okay, you guys, I know you don't always talk good to your mom, do you? They were honest, you know, I could see it in their eye. Like, you know, I mean, you, you talk back a little bit, a little bit of snarky remark, a little bit, well, why don't you try it or something? You know, it's like, it's like you know, and, then, and if you feel bad about it, what do you do? You, you know, you go to your mom, say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have. Shouldn't have done that. I mean, you forgive me. Shouldn't have that attitude. And mom, you know, she loves you and she recognizes, son, I, I forgive you. Hug and, you know, different. You feel good, right? So it's like, well, now, now, what if you, like, continued this rebellious attitude, you know, like, a lot longer? You just come to mom now and just say, hey, mom, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. What if... What if you, like, continue it into adulthood and you arrange to have your mom's good name framed and taken away so that you can claim the inheritance and claim all her goods and just set her up? You're just going to come to mom then later and go, like, hey, mom, I'm sorry. You're going to come later and go, oh, here, would $100... I dare say your mother would look back and you'd say, I'm even more offended. (laughs) Can you imagine? Can you imagine God? Oh, here, I'm gonna pray some more. I'm gonna I'm gonna really be good this time. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It doesn't cut it. If you this is this is scripture in Numbers chapter 12, Miriam and Aaron conspire against Moses and accuse him of, like, hogging the show. And like, hey, God speaks through us too, you know, kind of like, hey, you're not alone in this. And God strikes Miriam with leprosy. Moses, who loves his sister, is like, God, please take it away, please take it away. Notice, we just get immediately, let's get the forgiveness going here, let's get this away. And God says, look, if she spit, if I remember, I spit, in the face of her father, she would still have to bear her, her guilt, like, you know, for a time period, whatever. It's like, she didn't just spit in the face of her father. She insulted my, right, my chosen one. And this is my plan and everything. I'm paraphrasing there. I'm putting those things in there. So she has to wait seven days. But it just shows us we treat sins against God so lightly. We can just go to him, ask forgiveness. We're going to be okay. God forgives. That's kind of his job. But if we get offended, oh my, it's going to, you know, 
There there's nothing you could do that could make up. Nothing. I am offended that you even think that money could make up for the wrong that you've done. Well, it shows there's a conscience in us that's working, but it's redirected. It's directed in the wrong way. Where will you find a gift so great that would turn away the wrath of God? In Leviticus, when an ordinary Israelite sins, they would kill a ram, male, sheep, goat. When the whole congregation sins, a bull, or the high priest who represents the congregation, a bull, bigger life, more precious life. When a life is taken by murder, no sacrifice was offered. Not one valuable enough. Where will you find a life so valuable that the taking of that life covers not just one sin, but all of your sin? And not just your sin, but all the sins of people. Only when God's life is taken. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John the Baptist said. Then, the sin of the world is atoned for, is made up for. Then, God can be satisfied and his wrath can turn away. That's why Paul says the cross is a display of his righteousness, his rightness. Without the cross, you have a problem. Chapter 3, verse 26, 25 and 26 says... You have centuries of God passing over sins previously committed. And they're big. David, the murder, the adultery. All these sins, right? You have God passing them over and it looks like, well, I guess God's not that upset with them. I guess maybe they're not that big a deal. I guess, there's, I guess, I guess sinning against God isn't that big a deal because look, there, there seems to be a, a, a freely given forgiveness that shows long. At some point, God has to vindicate his name and say, no, sinning against God is a very big deal. Look at my son. That's what matches the offense you've given to my honor. Now, I have displayed, that's what your sin really deserved, and it's my grace that doesn't put it on you, but put it on him instead. The amazing thing of this solution is it causes the conscience to be satisfied. It puts it at rest. Because your conscience, if rightly tuned, says you should be punished. And it won't rest until something is done to make up for the wrong done. But now, with one look at Jesus on the cross, you go, oh, an overly sufficient payment has been made. An overly sufficient statement of God's honor has been made. That my sin really was serious. Oh, it has now been punished in him. And I don't need to whip myself ever again for my own sin. Because... By his whippings, I am healed. Because he was whipped, I don't have to beat myself up anymore over my sin. Conscience, be calm. That's powerful. The glory of this is that God then adds to the fact, not just a statement of his righteousness that echoes that you really sinned, but because... He voluntarily did it freely for you and me. It adds then an element of a display of his grace and mercy. So simultaneously in the cross is displayed both God's wrath because he is righteous. He will always uphold what is most glorious and what is most glorious is himself and his name. He will not let sins pass by lightly. He must make a statement that says sins are serious. But he adds to that statement of righteousness 
a statement of his glorious grace and mercy that he loves even unworthy and unlovables like us to bear it himself and to spare his own son, not spare him, but deliver him up. That statement adds to the other statement and makes the cross the perfect picture of the glory of our God. It's amazing. It's an amazing statement. Until I saw all this come together, I didn't realize how small my gospel was. My gospel was like, God says the wages of sin is death. Somebody around here better die for it. I can't. You can't. We need a sinless one. Jesus, would you do that? You know, and he dies for it. Which is true. Penal substitutory atonement is true. But it, it doesn't... It didn't answer the question, why is a death necessary? It didn't answer the real problem, which is the harm we've done to God's name. Like chapter 2 says, verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What's going to make up for all that damage done to his character, the defamation to his character and name? Only the cross when he displays his righteousness. And so there's more to it even farther than that than we can go into tonight because this passage doesn't do it. And that you have to add one more piece to the atonement and that is the union with Christ. If you don't have union with Christ, it can then look like he just kind of arbitrarily grabs somebody and throws all the guilt over there, even if he's willing and even if he's qualified. But no... It's even one step further. As Moses in the wilderness said, I and your people, I and your people, and God then made covenant with Moses and his people. Jesus says, I and my people, I and my people. And Jesus marries his church. And this very indebted woman marries this very rich man. And the moment the union is sealed through faith, all her debt is absorbed in his riches and all his riches becomes hers by right. That is the glory of the gospel. Isn't that good? So God be praised for his great grace. Once Paul lays that out in one paragraph, which is the most glorious paragraph, I just is amazing in Romans, then, then he moves on to then say and make a state, couple statements, and I'm going to reverse them, because the first statement he is, is you can't boast. But the second one is, God is one, and this is the same solution for both Jew and Gentile. There's no different solution. It's the cross for both of them. Now, that makes sense after chapters 1 and 2 and 3. The wrath of God was for both of them. They're both failures. So the solution is for both of them. And so, how is he going to prove this? How is he going to prove that just believing, in other words, receiving you actually believe the statement of God's grace given through the cross, and as he offers Jesus to you, you believe his heart that he really means it, and you welcome it, and you, and you just rest on that. So as you rest in faith on that gift given to you, it's just a gift, amazing gift, that applies to all sinners, Jew and Gentile, or as we use by analogy, churched and unchurched, Booked or not booked, everybody. And so there's one God. How are you going to prove, Paul, this applies to everybody? He uses his key star example, Abraham. And says, oh, it says of Abraham that he was justified through faith. It says it in Genesis 15, 6. He received this status through faith. And so when did he receive it? While he was a Gentile or while he was a Jew? Which is a historical question. When was he circumcised? He received this in chapter 15. When God put him in a coma, a deep sleep. And it's interesting, the only other time we find coma, this deep sleep in Genesis, as far as I can tell, is when God put Adam in a deep sleep. And God made 
made the woman from him. God puts Abraham in a deep sleep, and that leads us to expect something big is going to come. I wonder what's going to come. Well, in the context of the chapter, it says a seed is going to come. A child is going to come from you, Abraham. You're not going to adopt. It's going to come from you. Abraham believed in the Lord that it's going to come from, you, come from him. And so Abraham then, it's interesting, God puts him in a deep sleep. And in, while he's sleeping, he hears, he hears prophesied what's to come. And the land is going to be given to him. That's confirmed. And the covenant is made with Abraham all while he's asleep, which definitely shows unilateral grace. What follows later involves his obedience and things like that. But at this moment, and what starts the whole thing is faith and faith alone. Amazing. He's asleep. Anesthesia, God size. So, he received the justification, the righteousness through faith, while he was a Gentile. Hmm, good. That was helpful. Because now it applies to Gentiles. And it's going to apply to the Jews if they have the faith of Abraham. We'll see this in chapter 9. If they don't look like Abraham, they're not really a Jew. That's a discussion for tomorrow. And then the second thing he proves is, and Abraham had a particular kind of faith. He had a faith that, with respect to death. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 19. His promise is, you, Abraham, shall sire or beget a son. And he's been told now in Genesis that it will be through your wife who's 10 years younger than him. He's 99 when he gets the promise. His wife is 89. And even though people lived a long time in Genesis, that was still beyond childbearing years. And so, look what it says in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body. He contemplated. That means he gave thought. Lately, I've been looking at my skin. When I'm writing at my desk, and I'm going, you sure are wrinkly. <laughs> it's like, you don't look the same as you did when you were younger. You know? And I'm like, it ain't going to improve much in the future, is it? <laughs> it's like, I'm getting older. You know? And, and Abraham took a look at his body and goes, Yep, <laughs> you really are 99. In fact, the text says, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. And he looked at the deadness of Sarah's womb. Notice Paul's language is very particular, deadness, deadness. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. I love that. He did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, which is always the essence of faith. God's going to do something. God's going to show up. God can handle this. Being fully assured that what God has promised, he was able to perform. That led to a date night in some tent out in the desert somewhere. Those acted on faith. And Isaac... Laughter of laughter showed up. They chuckled over it. I mean, my wife and I laugh about things in our past. Like, you know, can you believe it? You know, like, that happened to us. You know, we'll, we'll check. I mean, you imagine what Abraham and Isaac were doing, or Abraham and Sarah were doing for years. You know, it's like, there's our boy. <laughs> boy, <laughs> that's an interesting one, isn't it, Abraham? You know, he showed up. Because he didn't waver in unbelief. He believed. He believed that God was able to give life to the dead and call into being what did not exist, a people, a name. You're not just Abraham, father of a people. Abram, excuse me, father of a people. I'm going to call you Abraham, father of many people. And Abraham's like, I don't even have my son yet. No, you're going to be father of many peoples. And so believing that God is able to call into existence, just name into existence. That's verse 17 of chapter 4. Just name into existence. And that he's able to give life to the dead. And if we throw in chapter 4, verse 5, that he is the one who justifies the ungodly, he can then label us righteous even though we're not. He can give us life even though we don't deserve it. Abraham believed in this kind of a God 
And God responded. And it was this kind, it was that quality of faith that justified Abraham. And then Paul concludes at the end. Verse 23, this was not for his sake only written, but it was credited to him, that it was credited to him, but it was also written for our sake, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. Paul's point is, your faith in Jesus rising from the dead is of the same quality and essence as Abraham's faith in God giving life to his body and Sarah. That there is no difference between Abraham's faith and your faith. It is the same faith, which then brings the hope that because Abraham was justified through that quality of faith, I too shall be justified. It shall be reckoned unto righteousness for me too, having that quality of faith, because I believe God raised Jesus from the dead. Same God, same way of salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, giving of righteousness, justifying the wicked through faith in a life-giving God. Now let me apply it. My application tonight, speaking of identity, because look at Abraham got an identity through this. Granted to him, you are Abraham. And he had to believe that identity even when there was nothing physically that would say that's true. You believe God over anything you see or hear. God is to be trusted. In fact, chapter 3 says, let God be true and every man a liar. God is able to fulfill any promise. He can make stones cry out and turn stones into sons of Abraham. Believe God. I know one lady lived with us recently and she grabbed onto this statement. It was a simple statement, but it really just cut at the heart of her fears. Take God at his word and drop it. Sometimes it's that simple. God said it, drop it. Don't pick it up again. Because God's word never fails. So God came through for Abraham. God came through for Jesus. God will come through for us. God will give life to us. God will raise us. And so we have a status. We need to believe that status. We have a name. We're righteous. Which there are days when I have completely failed or failed and everything. It's like, I don't even know. What do I do now? I feel like, you know, in this relationship or that relationship, what do I do? I have to start fresh with Jesus and what he says of me. I'm righteous in his sight. He's not charging me with my guilt. It was paid. Truly, Jesus was crucified for this guilt. I'm going to quit beating myself up. I'm going to do what Paul says in Philippians 3 and forget what lies behind and move forward to what lies ahead on the basis of justification because it's real. That's such positive news for each of us. Your past does not have to determine your future. And your past does not have to define your person because of Jesus and what he did on the cross, period. And for some of you tonight, you need to believe that and start fresh and walk home today lighter because you don't have to carry that shame and blame and guilt. It's gone through faith in Jesus. He got beat up for it. We don't need two of you beat up for it. You know what I mean? Conversely, the other thing that happened at the cross is this. You died. When Paul explains in Galatians about justification, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ means his death is reckoned to my account. I have been executed. As a criminal before God's law, I died. And the law can do nothing more to me because... The wages of sin is death. I died in Christ. Therefore, I am freed. Can't do anything more to me. 
The flip side of that is I lost my identity. Anything else that would like bolster me and make kind of like prop me up and speak well of me is gone. It won't help me anymore. It's kind of like wanting a better GPA when you already graduated from college. Sorry, 4.0, 3.5, or like they said, somebody told me up at Hillsdale College, you know, C's gets degrees. It doesn't matter. You graduated. You're done. And when we all step into heaven, it ain't going to matter. Well, how spotless was your record? Well, it's kind of messy. Yeah, it ain't going to matter in that day, right? And so at this point, if some of you are trying to prove yourself, you grew up in the shadow of a bad home, and you want to really prove that I'm going to do it right. I'm going to, I'm going to do it different than Dad did. I'm going to do it different than Mom did it. There's nothing to prove now that you're a Christian. You're freed from proving anything. you got no identity to gain. You forfeited your identity, your, your name when you went to Christ. Yet not I, Paul says, but Christ lives in me. The yet not I is like, I'm not the guy anymore. If anything happens to Bob Snyder, this is for the glory of Jesus. Bob's name died at the cross because I already tarnished that one and wrecked it. That one got buried in the tomb of Jesus. But now I live for the name of Jesus. I want my Savior. I've been bought with a price. I want to glorify God in my body. But it's so freeing. How, how odd would it be for... I mean, how odd would it be for slaves that have been liberated to then turn around and talk about how much better they were in their job or how much they were worthy of getting liberated because I actually did more for the master than you did. It just doesn't matter. Comparisons don't matter. So you put the two together. All of us in the room are failures and all of us have a status of righteousness as a gift by his grace. Where is there room to boast? It is excluded, chapter 3 says. If this is the way you've approached God, boasting is done. This is why the law doesn't help us anymore. Because the law comes along and says, why don't you keep some food things? Why don't you keep some day things? Like, why? I'm already righteous in Christ. I'm freed up to bring him glory and to love my neighbor. That's all I need to do now. We'll see that in later chapters. It's amazing. But the other things are status-achieving things. And I want each of us tonight to please stop trying to prove ourselves. Or when we get offended and put down, stop trying to defend ourselves in that moment. If it's a matter of principle about God's glory, a matter for the good of others, then there's something to take up. But if it's just your name looking good or looking bad, let it go. Deny yourself. Who is, who is you? Just like Peter denied Jesus and said, who is Jesus? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ. If he was willing to look bad for you, and I tell you, being on a cross, butchered and naked, with your sin and mine hanging on, on him, if he was willing to look bad for you, I think we can be willing to look bad for him. What does it matter to us? Let's let our name go. Honestly, it'll be so freeing. And I have seen it in the church of Jesus Christ where names are dropped and it doesn't matter who gets the credit for things and whose idea gets done. Things really work for the kingdom. And so please take this into account. This is our second layer from Romans. We saw that we're all failures from chapters 1 and 2 and 3 and now from 3 and 4 we've seen the righteousness given to us that that held up the righteousness of God and we are laying down our own name and saying only the name of Jesus now. Those two put together say, what do I have to prove? I'm already going to inherit heaven. And so let me pray tonight as we close and then we'll pick it up again tomorrow morning. Father in heaven, Lord, we are grateful. Tonight, Lord, you enabled us to truly sense Walk close to the cross of Jesus and see the glory, your glory displayed and your son's glory. Father, it would be shameful for us 
to cash that in for a mere promotion of ourself, of our own name, take advantage of it, and now to try and prove something of ourselves. Lord, let us live in the glory of the gift, in the glory of the name given to us, the name of Christ, and wear that jersey proudly and be so happy that we can be on this team. And so we commit this to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.